I'm Connor Robinson, Programs Director of Foundation Beyond Belief and founder of the Humanist Service Corps. As bleak as the world may seem right now, we know as humanists that the way to regain a sense of hope in our own lives is to give hope to others. You can act to restore hope to Ghanaian women victimized by witch hunting and other forms of gender-based violence by making a donation to the Humanist Service Corps. Learn more and donate now at humanistservicecorps.org. Hey everyone, just a heads up that we do use a swear word in this episode, so if you have young children or aren't comfortable with an F-bomb, you may want to skip this one. Also, Foundation Beyond Belief is a 501c3 nonprofit and does not endorse candidates. Any political opinions expressed in this episode are the personal opinions of your hosts and do not reflect Foundation Beyond Belief's positions. Now to the episode. Donald Trump, elected president of the United States. Hope is central to humanist thought because humanists put human agency at the center of their ideas about how to change the world. You hoped that people would change their attitudes. I guess we must have hoped that there would be a cure, but day by day people kept dying. I'm Sarah Blaine. And I'm Evan Clark. Welcome to The Humanist Experience, a podcast series where we seek out transformative encounters that educate our emotions and expand our world. This is the third in a three-part story about our year full of obstacles and failures and our case for hope. If you haven't listened to those episodes yet, we encourage you to go back and give them a listen. They give this episode a bit of context and we think you'll enjoy them. At the end of our last episode, we had successfully made it through a year of health challenges, business mistakes, and financial struggles. Right up to election night. And CNN projects Donald Trump will carry the state of Florida. With its 29 electoral votes, Donald Trump wins Florida. A huge win for Donald Trump. Oh my God, they just called Florida for him. Uh, let's go look. Let's go look. Our state, Arizona, saw some victories for human rights, social justice, and humanism. The infamous Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio lost his re-election campaign, ending his two-and-a-half-decade-long crusade of racial profiling and prisoner abuse. Ryan Winkle, who is open about his humanism throughout his campaign, was elected to the city council of the most conservative city in America, Mesa, Arizona. Representative Juan Mendez, a progressive humanist activist, won his campaign for the state Senate and was replaced in the state house by a millennial atheist from an immigrant family, Athena Selman. But around 2.30 a.m., when Hillary Clinton conceded to Donald Trump, suddenly our failures and challenges over the past year paled in comparison to the failure of our political system and the challenges that lay ahead. This is CNN Breaking News. We want to welcome our viewers in the United States and around the world. This is a new day indeed. President-elect Donald J. Trump, a stunning comeback, wins in places and by margins that made this victory deep and decisive. It wasn't just that we'd hope for a more progressive president. In elections for every level of government, 
voters cast their ballots in favor of walls rather than bridges, for tribalism rather than humanism. We saw immigration justice, economic justice, and environmental justice take hit after hit after hit in city, county, state, and federal elections. Even if Hillary Clinton had won her election, the overall results made it look like progressive humanism was losing the culture war. Because ultimately they won senates and they won legislatures and they won governorships. And like even if Trump lost, he would have gotten 49% of the vote, we would have lost the Senate and the House, and we would have lost most state legislatures. Like the problem doesn't magically go away if we don't have Donald Trump. And like the culture made it possible where he made it out of the primary. That's the problem. Yeah. He shouldn't have made it that far, let alone the general, which became an electoral college problem. Hillary did win the popular vote. And more people should have turned out and he should have been destroyed. But ultimately, like, he never should have made it out of the primary. How did our culture get to a place where that's possible? As we process what had happened, our previous post-election plans of taking some time off, working on a few of our creative projects slowing down after the mad rush of campaigning. Those plans seemed extravagant now. Dreamers and other immigrants faced immediate danger of deportation and separation from their families. Prison reform and abolition efforts were now facing strong new enemies, leaving incarcerated people exposed to continuing exploitation and abuse. Women's reproductive health rights, public education, and so many other cornerstones of a free and equal society were being kicked out from under us. It was disheartening. And to realize that rather than taking some small steps forward for progress, we were taking several large steps backward. We were thinking about what we would do next. I mean, we have a whiteboard with 25 ideas on it. Um, Some political, some like science culture, some atheism some just creative but uh yeah and then trump won (laughs) and and the senate was lost which was already lost and you know enough state legislatures were lost where they almost can pass constitutional amendments and don't spread that around i don't want them to figure it out (laughs) our earlier ideas didn't fit with the new cultural and political reality how are we going to find a way forward in this new reality What was the best way to put our skills and passions to work? In our last episode, we talked about how hope operates as a complex motivational system. The process of hope changes our brain chemistry and makes us better at capitalizing on opportunities. We also talked about the research that has shown how surrounding ourselves with positive people has a significant impact on our health and well-being. We'd experience the benefits of positive thinking and positive people as we face personal challenges in the year behind us. But now, it seems our whole country was confronted with a serious threat to hope and progress. We needed some positive camaraderie, now more than ever. How do you two never age? Very shortly after the election, our friend James Croft was attending a retreat in Arizona from St. Louis, Missouri. He works as a leader of an ethical culture congregation. Ethical culture is 
a humanistic, religious, and educational movement. James is not only a professional humanist who shares our values, he's also one of the most positive people we know. Meeting up with him for encouragement post-election seemed like good self-care as our sense of hope wavered. I hate everybody. Right. I hate everybody. Okay, so James was struggling with some post-election discouragement also. So for those listening at home, <laughs> my voice has just become weird because I have a big chunk of caramel apple muffin in my mouth. And oh my God, is it good? Is it? Yes. But the thing about positive people is that they have made it a practice to be open to the good. Being positive and optimistic doesn't mean we can't look realistically at the awfulness of an event or the seriousness of a challenge. But we can also realistically look at the good and the possible. And James Croft has made it his full-time job to celebrate the good, explore the possible, and move forward with hope. Being around him makes it easier to feel joy. We spent a couple of hours with James commiserating, discussing our different approaches for recovering from the election, and talking about what comes next. So I woke up Wednesday morning, I'm like wearing the same clothes I fell asleep in just crawled into a cr- corner of the couch and like what did I do like crochet and watch TV all day or something yeah you were free and Evan was like yes we're gonna get organized and he's on the phone with like everybody like we're getting we're getting shit done yeah. yeah there was no grieving he's like I'm so excited we are we are so perfect for making this happen no I don't think he skipped the phases I think he's stuck in denial that's what I yeah. said I'm like okay so you're doing this in a different order I'm doing than this backwards. I am it's okay <laughs> That's all right. It was funny. You yeah. do you, Evan. I was moving straight into, let's fix this, mode. But like louder, though. <laughs> I could hear you in all rooms of the house. As soon as Hillary conceded, I posted on Facebook, if you're really upset about what's happening, call or text me. We'll find things you can do. I was taking half a dozen calls a day, getting people connected to ways they could take action. I was laying around reading the myth of Sisyphus and eating potato chips. And James... He admitted he was still just trying to understand what happened. All three of us, though, had a shared sense of personal loss. We felt like this election signaled a derailment of the progress we'd made and changed what our life work as activists was going to look like. It's a trend with the Brexit and Trump and the far-right rise in many European countries, and that's not what I wanted my life to be about. I didn't want to be fighting neo-fascism. Right. I know this is a very selfish way to think about it, but that's where I am right now. I wanted to be pushing forward with the the next progressive thing. Exactly. Rather than fighting the battles that I thought we'd already won. And I didn't want my 30s to be about that. I wanted Star Trek. Right. And instead, we got Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) In light of our new Battlestar Galactica reality, what should we be doing? How should we reignite the flame of hope that had lit our way during the campaign season? Last episode, we explored the practicality of hope. We learned that having hope actually makes us more effective. It triggers the reward center in our brains, calms our stress response, and helps us focus on solutions. But even if hope makes us feel better and allows us to be more effective, that doesn't give it truth value. What if we're incorrect about what's possible? As humanists, we place a high value on truth. 
on understanding our world as it actually is. We need reasons for our beliefs. It's April now, five months after the election. And honestly, we're still asking this question. Do we have good reasons for hope? Knowing that there are so many negative outcomes of this election and watching those negatives grow daily, where's the space for hope? Last month, we checked back in with James Croft over Skype to ask about hope from a humanist perspective. We'd already discovered a lot about the psychology of hope and its neurochemical effects for last month's episode. But now we're struggling with more philosophical questions about hope. Sure, hope is good for us, but is it an accurate way to understand how the world works? What is the relationship between hope and practicing humanism? Hope is central to humanist thought because humanists put human agency at the center of their ideas about how to change the world. We recognize that if society is going to be improved, then it's going to be because people worked extraordinarily uh, hard against great odds to improve it. And if one uh, didn't have hope, if one didn't believe that we could, in fact, change things for the better, then I think that would make a humanist life extremely difficult to live. Because really, what is the point of fighting for justice if you believe that you cannot actually achieve it? And this brought us to the crux of our question. Is it rational to believe that we can actually achieve some measure of justice? What reason do humanists have to hope in the face of threats to the very ground humanism is built on? Threats of tribalism and isolationism, fascism, and global environmental catastrophe. But James's understanding of hope distinguishes a reasonable, useful hope from an ungrounded hope. Hope is a belief in the plausibility of the possible rather than the inevitability of the probable. And what that means is that to be hopeful doesn't mean to be um, full of false hope or to be idealistic in an untethered way, just believing that good things will happen just because. That useful hope is the belief that what is possible is at least plausible as an outcome, and that what is probably going to happen is not inevitably going to happen. And so there is some chance that if we work hard, we can in fact change the outcome. And further, James explained how we can in fact base our hope on evidence. I am always given hope by the reminder that in my life I've been parts of campaigns that have legitimately change things for the better. Political campaigns and social campaigns and activism and things like that. I've been part of groups of people, often very small groups of people, who have made positive change in their communities. So I have experienced it. The first thing I thought of when I reflected on this idea of having experienced small groups of people making change was my daughter, Lois. I am an activist. I have been since, like, Well, since I was a baby. (laughs) Lois's lifetime at 14 marks a teeny span of time. But even in her young age, she's already experienced change in her community. I think the first protest I remember going to, like, have a 
ish memory of being there was the one at the middle school about the mural um with that they were protesting on whether it should be uh painted lighter skinned in 2010 Local artists were commissioned to paint a mural on a public school building in our town, Prescott, Arizona. The mural portrayed children from the school playing and riding their bikes. After the painting was completed, Prescott City Councilman Steve Blair complained on his local radio show that depicting, quote, a black guy, end quote, in the middle of that mural didn't fit Prescott's image. What they depict as being appropriate for the community is not the same thing that I depict. I am not a racist individual, but I will tell you depicting a black guy in the middle of that mural, based upon who's president of the United States today, and based upon the history of this community when I grew up, we had four black families who I have been very good friends with for years. To depict the biggest picture on that building as a black person I would have to ask the question, why? The um, black guy in the mural was actually Mario, a student at the school. After Councilman Blair's racist remarks on the radio, the mural artist was asked by the principal of the school to lighten Mario's skin. Some people wanted the artist uh, who painted the mural because some of the kids were black and they wanted to have the skin lighter toned so it wasn't black and we protested that that wasn't okay. Lois was seven in 2010 and the outcome of the first protest she remembers? Um, a protest worked, (laughs) so. The mural was ultimately not whitewashed. And the community began an important and ongoing dialogue on diversity, racism, and privilege. My daughter can point to an example of being part of a very small group of people making change just in her first seven years of life. And if we expand the sample size beyond one kid to look at whether human beings do affect change in spans of time both small and great, we do in fact find evidence for hope. I find myself the challenge of hopelessness, hopelessness <laughs> to be very difficult to deal with. I take, I tend to be emotionally um, affected by events quite deeply. And so when tons of bad stuff happen, I can start to feel quite hopeless. I can sometimes feel like there isn't a way for human beings to change things. And the thing that pulls me back from that is the evidence of history, frankly. We set out to explore a bit about the evidence of history and examples of change in the span of our own lifetimes. We looked at an issue that James, Evan, and I have all worked on, LGBTQ equality. James and I are millennials, and Sarah is a Gen Xer. Most of our activism for equality has been in the 21st century. And we have some definite wins we can point to in both of our generations. But a generation back, when I was still a toddler, people in the gay community weren't just fighting for equality. They were fighting to survive. Moved back to Philadelphia in 1983. And one of the first things I did was join a group at 
Penn, where I was in graduate school, called uh, Lesbian, no, actually it was called Gay and Lesbian, um, Peer Counseling. Emily Kahn Friedman is a marriage and family therapist in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And that was just a neat group. I made some good friends there and really enjoyed, you know, besides the counseling, because I later became a therapist and I probably first discovered how much I liked it doing that peer counseling. But also um, I met Robbie and Robbie was the first person I knew with AIDS. In the 1980s, as the AIDS epidemic broke out, she was in graduate school in Philadelphia. Anti-gay discrimination began to take on an entirely new dimension. And it, it kind of exaggerated the homophobia that was there. Just like I think certain political things recently have exaggerated anti-Semitism and things like that. I, I think it sort of spread out and made it more acceptable to be homophobic. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just sort of this contamination thing. And it was where it was maybe gay people were sort of dismissed or disparaged or people were afraid they were going to turn gay if somebody made a pass at them or whatever. But now it had this sort of deadly disease attached to it. Emily was a writer for lesbian and gay newspapers and was following news about AIDS very closely. But her experience with Robbie, a fellow peer counselor, made AIDS real for her. He was one of the counselors, but I didn't know him very well. I remember he was very thin, and he probably hadn't always been that thin, but I didn't know that. And then one day he came in and told us that he was diagnosed with AIDS. And peer counseling kind of organized a group of people to take turns spending time with him and helping him out. He lived by himself. Um, his parents lived in town. And I guess they were supportive. I don't think I met them until his funeral. But mostly he had us, and we took turns. He was 24. Out of nowhere, young gay men many of them leaders in the gay rights movement, were sick and dying. Uh, there was a time when I I just took a look at an address book. Remember address books? People had actual little books with addresses, and it seemed like half the people in it were dead. People were just dying. You really can relate to the word plague. It was a plague. And just the idea that you didn't, if, if you hadn't seen so-and-so in a while, you... Your first thought, and, and we're talking about people in their 20s, your first thought was, are they still alive? The lesbian and gay community had already spent decades organizing for liberation, equality, and social acceptance. Now this activist community had to organize around providing basic care to sick and dying men in their 20s and 30s. And as they became too sick to work, these men often had no resources to maintain a place to live, and they faced discrimination from landlords, hospitals, and service agencies. People were refusing to serve them and refusing to take care of them, and, and uh, you know, people eventually opened hospices and, and programs for people with AIDS. Once you were diagnosed, you were dying. I think it's hard for people to imagine today unless they've read about it. It was just... People needed a place to, to be and a place to die. Emily told us that people with AIDS often had little or no family support, or family supported them, but only secretly because of the stigma associated with the disease and with the community it was hitting the hardest. 
Um, I know Robbie's family pretended he had leukemia. I think that was very common. It was just sort of a day-by-day thing. It was a given. You fought it. You hoped that people would change their attitudes. I guess we must have hoped that there would be a cure. We must have hoped that. But day-by-day, people kept dying. People that I really cared about. And sometimes in really awful ways. This kind of activism, the kind where you dress wounds of your friends whose bodies are riddled with opportunistic infections, change the diapers of your 30-something neighbors, carry 80-pound men up and down their stairs because they're too weak to walk. This kind of activism is impossible to even conceptualize for those of us whose LGBTQ advocacy didn't start until decades later. And while the lesbian and gay community were learning how to be caregivers, people outside the community were pretending AIDS didn't exist, that it wasn't wiping out a generation of young gay men. Emily told us about attending Robbie's funeral and how the rabbi, herself a lesbian, was asked by the family not to say anything that implied Robbie might have been gay or that he had died from AIDS. She made a very impassioned sermon or whatever at the funeral where she talked about how Robbie was always honest about who he was, but she couldn't say what that was, so she pretended it was being Jewish and that he was open about being Jewish. But everybody there who knew him and loved him knew what she was talking about, that he was who he was, and Jewish wasn't the most important part of that. (laughs) In this climate, AIDS activists had to rage against invisibility. Funerals full of charades and euphemisms were countered with political funerals. Activists marched in the streets carrying the bodies of their loved ones lost to AIDS, publicly raging against inaction by government leaders. Let everyone here know that this is not a political funeral for Mark Fisher, who wouldn't let us burn or bury his courage or his love for us any more than he would let the earth take his body until it was already in flight. He asked for this ceremony, not so we could bury him, but so we could celebrate his undying anger. This isn't a political funeral for Mark. It's a political funeral for the man who killed him and so many others and is slowly killing me, whose name curls my tongue and curdles my breath. George Bush, we believe you'll be defeated tomorrow because we believe there's still some justice left in the universe and some compassion left in the American people. Bereaved friends and family of people who died from AIDS brought cremated remains to Washington, D.C. and threw them on the lawn of the White House, demanding that the president look at the cost of his inaction. You know, this is what I'm left with. I've got a a box full of ashes and bone chips. You know, there's no beauty in that. Um, 
And I, I felt like a statement like this, throwing these on the White House lawn, is like saying, this is what George Bush has done. You know, this is what him and Ronald Reagan before him have done. Bring the dead to your door. We won't take it anymore. Bring the dead to your door. We won't take it anymore. Bring the dead to your door. We won't take it anymore. Bring the dead to your door. My first involvement with GLBT activism was in 1996 when I interned as a 17-year-old for a congressional campaign. By this time, The volunteer care networks Emily talked about had been formalized into community organizations and government task forces. These early AIDS caregivers built from scratch a whole web of services when governments, from local city halls to the White House, were simply absent in the AIDS fight. That same year, I was seven, the same age Lois was at her first successful protest. And that year, AIDS deaths in the United States finally stopped climbing. And five years ago, when my brother came out as gay to our family, AIDS was being viewed as a chronic but manageable disease. These things didn't happen by themselves. And this timeline gives us some perspective on what can be accomplished for change within one lifetime. Since the first AIDS diagnosis in the United States, the young men lost to the disease in this country outpaces the number of American soldiers lost in combat over the entire past century. But between the time I was born, in 1979, and the time I was old enough to donate blood, in 1996, the LGBTQ community and its allies brought to a halt a holocaust with only their hands and voices. In 2017, a man diagnosed with HIV at 24, the age Robbie was when he received his diagnosis, can expect to live to 77 with treatment. That's the same life expectancy as a man without HIV. The reason U.S. AIDS deaths didn't continue on an exponential pace was because advocates and activists worked incredibly hard in Holocaust conditions to demand government funding and research, to demand access to medicine, to oppose discrimination, and to shift culture. It is the case, as a matter of fact, that human beings have made major moral progress. We have come to understand our ethical responsibilities to each other better than we did before. And we have been able to work with each other to improve conditions in society for millions upon millions of people. And that is a fact. And so because I can look back and say, no, our ancestors achieved amazing things in terms of forcing society to change. And they were against extraordinary odds as well. And they were able to do it. That gives me hope. The activists of Emily's generation laid the groundwork for the progress we've been a part of in our advocacy work. Millennials and Gen Xers aren't fighting in Holocaust conditions. We do have friends and fellow activists who are HIV positive, but our generations are attending the weddings of our young gay friends, not their funerals. So I think it, I'm proud about it. And I think there's been enormous changes in, well, 
you know, it's legal. Gay marriage is legal. I never dreamed that would ever, ever happen in my lifetime. <laughs> so a lot has changed, and I think it's wonderful and hopeful. We know that change was possible in retrospect because we accomplished it, but it wasn't probable. It took hard work, and it took hope. If the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, it's because human beings have worked hard against incredible obstacles to bend it that way. If we accept James's premise that human beings have made positive change historically and even in the course of our own lives, then we can stop asking ourselves whether change is possible, but how? What can we do to make hope and change more plausible? How can we improve our chances of success? In our last episode, we learned that hope itself actually makes us better at capitalizing on opportunities so that we're more effective change makers. Hope is self-fulfilling. So I can remind people, like, this is how hope works, right? Now, I am in the position of being able to say to them, remember when we fought that and won? Remember when we changed the future that one time? Well, now we can do it again. And that is the sort of hope that I think is useful. It's not Pollyanna-ish. Oh, it's going to be better in the future. It's remember that concrete time when we worked fucking hard and made something happen together? Well, let's do it again. That's the sort of hope that I want. Hope can and should be a part of our approach to the threats to human rights and ecological health, to the racism sexism, homophobia, and xenophobia we associate with the Trump presidency. I think the unity was key. Um, I've experienced that again recently, <laughs> although in a, in a terribly divisive way, but I don't know, like the Women's March in Santa Fe was a great experience of unity. You know, these aren't easy times to be hopeful in, but I am. These are not easy times to be hopeful in, but we have each other. And the next generation of activists like Lois will pick up our work after us. These are good reasons for hope. Never really thought about me having hope. I've just worked hard. And I've done my best, and that's all I can do to solve an issue that's so important to me and millions and could change the course of history and lives forever. So I guess that feeling of people supporting you and are behind you in fighting for this cause, any cause, is a great feeling, and I guess you could call that hope. next time on The Humanist Experience. With the military, there's this, from my perspective, there's an assumption that you, you're you doing this for God and country. We hear that a lot. I was teaching a resiliency class, and one of the men in the room, when he was talking about um, the concept of stress and dealing with it, uh, he said, you know, they say there are no atheists in foxholes. And he just went on from that position. There are no atheists in foxholes when when you get scared uh there's also no atheists on airplanes just a whole bunch of stuff so you know i smile and i let him get to his point and everything um but much later i i was kind of 
making a point about something else, and I, I just said, and as a foxhole atheist, sir, here's how I feel about that. Before you go, we'd like to tell you about the Humanist Service Corps, a project run by our new podcast partner, Foundation Beyond Belief. HSC is an international volunteering program guided by the principles of secular humanism. As Connor Robinson mentioned at the top of this episode, HSC is currently deployed in northern Ghana. They're working to end the local custom of accusing women of witchcraft and forcibly exiling them into lives of extreme poverty, isolation, and desperation. If you would like to be a part of HSC's efforts to support Ghanaian women, visit fbbgives.org. That's fbbgives.org. If you would like to support the Humanist Experience, you can find the link to donate to our work at humanistexperience.com. Once again, that's humanistexperience.com. As the official podcast of the National 501c3 nonprofit Foundation Beyond Belief, gifts to the Humanist Experience are tax-deductible. Another great way to support the podcast is to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever fancy podcast app you use. It really, really helps us grow the podcast visibility. Also, make sure to follow our journeys across the country on Facebook and Instagram. We post all our hilarious behind-the-scenes photos and videos there. Special thanks for this episode go to Dina Canner, who graciously donated our recording space this month. Our lion tamer, Gustavo Youngberg, and our development associate and composer for some of the songs you hear in our podcast, Eric Zaka-Zootopia. Additional music for this episode includes Apocalypse by Ross Bugden, Ether by Silent Partner, and Tomorrow by Ben Sound. We can't forget our producer and Kafka impersonator, Andre Soleil at Unbelievers Media. The Humanist Experience is produced in collaboration with Unbelievers Media, LLC, and is the official podcast of Foundation Beyond Belief. We're your hosts, Sarah Blaine and Evan Clark, and we'll see you next time. Oh my god. (laughs) Whoa, that's like a valley girl (laughs) British accent. That's. (laughs) Oh my. I hope I hope he never hears this. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, now I can't even think of what a British accent sounds like. I'm thinking of a Valley Girl accent.